Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined, as usual, by Terry Fakes. And we are picking up where we left off in mid-December, the last episode of our Objection series. So in some ways, this is a part two of the episode that we did on the problem of evil. But in other ways, this is a separate objection. And I think this objection, the problem of evil as it relates to God, is a much more difficult objection than the problem of evil as it as it pertains to man. I would agree with that. Uh, I think they're both substantive, but this has probably uh, classically been one that's been argued for as long as I can recall, as long in history as I can recall. Yeah, it seems so if to we be were a perennial to objection. Trace the most difficult problems through history, this would be it. This problem of evil is as right. old as Christianity. It's as old as um, philosophy. In part one, we basically said, why do bad things happen to good people? Why, why is there right. evil in the world for that we experience, be, right. uh, even though we have a good and almighty God? But now the question would be a little bit something more like, if the reason that we can explain evil from a human perspective is we have a benevolent God who's working all things for good, that solves the human side of things. You back right. up a step, though, and you say, well, hold on a second. If you're an almighty good God, why is there even evil in the first place? So confronting yes. the reality of evil, kind of the experience of evil, and then now confronting the existence of evil. You know, mm-hmm. um, how did this even happen in the first place? It's one, thing, it's, it's one thing to find things a mess and put them back together. It's another thing to account for how the mess got made you know, in the beginning. Right. So that's that's where we're kind of turning our attention now. And this maybe of all the objections is the easiest to roll out uh, kind of our steel man version of this objection, which is why is this a good objection? Well, I think it's probably the most formidable objection, not just against Christianity, against any belief in God, but certainly against the Christian God. And so um let me make a couple of arguments that you hear for this and flesh out this, this argument a bit. Uh-huh. So one way to frame this argument would be uh, to look at God's own character and say, how is it possible that you have a good God who allows, tolerates, authorizes, whatever word you want to use, the kind of evil we have in the world? But you have, in order to make that a really strong argument, though, you need to tighten it up a little bit. And so you you kind of want to run the argument something like this. There are events in this world that are so bad, right? So much suffering, so evil, you know, insert whatever you want, the Holocaust, you know, whatever you want to say. Right. There are events in this world that are so bad that God cannot possibly outweigh them with something good. Now, this this is this assumes a lot, and I think part of this objection is unpacking that, right? So unpacking, well, what's even being assumed in this argument? Um, to put it a little slightly differently, no state of affairs in this world is so good that the omnipotent, benevolent God could be morally justified in allowing the evil that goes along with it. Right. So let's unpack some of the assumptions that are that are in that. You've got evil that is so bad that now we have to question if God really is good for allowing that amount of evil. What what kinds of things underlie that? Well, the biggest underlying issue, and you may have to think about this a little bit, here's my view, Cole. The, the biggest underlying issue that makes this seem really powerful 
is I actually think that statement is true in a finite universe. Hmm. It's almost like in mathematics. If you have a small set, a finite set, it's got a certain number of elements in it. I think this would be true. So let me translate it. If this life is all there is, I believe that is an almost overwhelming argument. Mm. If, however, this is not all there is, that there actually, this is a tiny, insignificant piece of the eternity of, of us and our existence. Now, all of a sudden, this argument loses a great deal of its force because even though it doesn't change how bad something is, you now are talking about a tiny little piece. And this is not a great analogy, but for example, it's very painful to have a baby, and I've yet to hear a mother say it wasn't worth it for the 30 years or whatever I have of this child's life. In other words, if you put it against a big enough backdrop, this argument begins to lose its force. So to mm -hmm. me, that's probably the premise where this makes the most sense, is if there is no life after death. Yes. I think that that is one of the things that's kind of smuggled into this argument that right. does make it strong. And and in fact, it points to the fact that if those are the parameters, it's a very good argument. The The other thing would be uh, you have God who is basically creating a universe that has bad things and good things, and the good is going to outweigh the bad in the end. That assumes that you know what the final calculus is going to be. We'll talk about this in a minute right. with some of the objections to this uh, argument, but it, it does assume that you can put like a numerical value or some way of ranking good and bad events against each other. So uh, right. there's nothing so good that could outweigh the Holocaust. Okay. That means that we're able to quantify in some way, you know, on a scale of one to 10, it's a 10, it's an 11, yes. you know, um, is there any good that can outweigh that? So, so that's one thing is that it, it assumes that we can kind of evaluate moral good and evil from our own position. Um, the second thing, though, is that, that we can determine what is truly good and evil on our own terms. Because right. the moment that you start to say there's an evil so evil that it outweighs all the good, and that's a charge against God, all of a sudden um, you've put yourself in a place where you're saying, hey, you know, I think this is evil enough and this good is not good enough that it outweighs it. But it doesn't take into account what God might think about that. So God actually might have a right. little bit different take on what is evil and what is good. And therefore, the evaluation of what is evil and what is good might be a little bit different. So right. we, we have to bring in some mechanism of saying, mm -hmm. this is how you evaluate evil and good. And then another way of almost scoring the evil and the good to show that this evil is actually such a high value that there's nothing commensurate on the good side that could outweigh it. The other, the other assumption, and this kind of seems like a duh statement, but it, it, but it is interesting in weighing this argument against its alternatives. So like, if this is true, then maybe there isn't a God is who says that good should outweigh evil in the universe. Um, you know, who, who says yeah, that actually good, good should weigh out because if, if, I think one of the strongest objections or the strongest um, rebuttals to this argument is what are the alternatives? You may not like the Christian system, but what are the alternatives? At least right. here we have an uh -huh. aspiration that it should be a good world uh, because yeah. God guarantees that. But the alternative would be, well, who says? Who says it's a, it, there should be good things in the world at all? You know, and, and, and maybe you have to just deal with the fact if you're an atheist, you have to deal with the fact that 
there isn't necessarily anything that says that, but at least that's a consistent system. So that would be another way of flushing out that argument. True. I think on a more popular level um, and a biblical level, the another version of this argument would be, if you're God, why create Satan? You know, why yeah. why even create Satan? And I was looking around the internet this week to see kind of on a more popular level what people do with this. Because I, I, this is a question you get asked a lot in church. In fact, um, kids wonder this. I, I think little kids, middle sure. schoolers, they have a very acute sense of, well, if you knew that he was going to be bad, why did you create him in the first place? It's a very simple way to frame this. And anyway, I was looking around to see what different preachers had done with this. And there were some interesting ways to go about this. Some of them, you know, along the lines of the free will argument, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Some of them along the lines mm -hmm. of, well, he didn't create Satan, you know, created Lucifer, you know, the angel right. of light, and then Lucifer became Satan. I, I wouldn't necessarily use the nomenclature that way, but you know, kind right. of this, well, yes. he created, sure. he created a good being and the, and the good being ruined itself and became bad. And I think that exposes another angle to this, and you can get really technical with this really quickly, but it, it goes all the way down to what is the nearest proximate cause? What is the original cause? You know, can, right. can God be faulted with evil in the world because he created the world? Well, that all depends on how many causes there are between God and the evil itself. And there's a lot of ways to make sense of this argument based on that, to kind of bring in Aristotle's uh, yes. set of causes. And at what point in the causal chain do you have moral responsibility for what's happened? This is another version of this argument that I think is very interesting. Is God ultimately the author of evil since he created everything? Is he responsible for everything that happens in the world? And if he even has a little shred of responsibility, how can he really be justified in the world as it is? Uh, when he's the one that press play to make the world come into being. Well, and this argument ties in a little to what you said before, and that is we're looking at one piece and trying to draw a conclusion. So, for example, we say, well, you do have Satan and you do have evil in the world. So why create the world? What is not being considered is, but you also have beauty and you have truth and you have love and you have tenderness and acceptance. It comes back to an evaluative statement. How much evil in the world is worth not having created the world at all? So mm -hmm. it's not a black and white issue. I'm only pointing out that this argument isn't quite as black and white as it sounds. It's still an evaluative argument. It's it's a weighing, if you will. And obviously, God, as you pointed out, may weigh this differently than we do. So this, I'm not rebutting the argument. I'm simply clarifying it to say it is assuming that it understands all the truth and beauty and goodness in the world too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that leads me to what what responses can we make to these mm -hmm. objections? And I there are four that I want to go over that are all in their own way. Some of them are compatible with each other. Some of them are not. But they're all four really notable uh, ways to deal with this throughout history. The first one is kind of a limitation of human knowledge type of rebuttal, which essentially would say we don't actually know everything that we need to know to make this kind of argument. So again, right. pointing to what we looked at earlier, to flesh out that argument, you'd need to have some kind of mechanism for weighing good and evil. And the fact of the matter is we we actually do not know all that is possible for God to do through the evil in the right. world. 
And we don't know what God knows about what is going to come from evil. So back to your point, in the scope of eternity, it's very difficult to say nothing can outweigh this, whatever this happens to be. Um, you know, nothing good enough could come from this. That's very hard to say in the scope of eternity because, number one, it's a very long time. And number two, we actually don't know what God knows. We don't know what is planned. We can't take in all the information at once, and so we can't make a final judgment on these things from where we stand. So there's there's an essential limitation on the human side of this that we actually don't know all that will come or all that is planned in the future. We can only look at what's happened thus far. Yeah, maybe jumping forward to a Christian point of view a little bit is the idea that just like your kids have an opinion about their bedtime and whether or not they should have to go to school, but they're not the ones in the best position to make that. You as a parent have a far broader perspective. Let me just generalize that to say the finite beings, us, who are weighing in on this evaluation do not have the perspective that God eternal has on this. So I'm not trying to shut the argument down, but I want to put that perspective in. You have to, When you're going to make an evaluation, you have to ask yourself, do I know enough to be the best one to evaluate this? And I think what you're challenging is that we have a limitation of knowledge and God does not. So perhaps God is in a better position to decide this issue than we are. Right. Yeah, there's some different versions of this argument. I think one of the people that has taken this kind of argument up is Alvin Plantinga. He's one of the great yes. Christian philosophers of our era. He has a little book called God, Freedom, and Evil, which we'll talk about when we get to the free will defense, uh, because that's really the defense he makes against the problem of evil. But he does point out something interesting in that argument, that God could have created a world uh where the greatest good is realized. That's that's possible mm -hmm. for God. But there is some worlds out there in all the possible worlds that the greatest possible good comes about. And what Plantinga does is he says, we are not 100% sure what that world would look like. But if we take God's word for it for a second, it's going to include things like redemption, love, moral responsibility, forgiveness, etc., and this is kind of what we talked about in the last episode, for those things to occur, there has to be some level of evil and sin because you can't have right. those things. You can't have resurrection without death, et cetera. So what planning, a, the way it comes around is we know that God could create that world, but are we really sure that this isn't that world? It's, very, it's, it's, it's a little hubristic for us to say that this isn't that world when God claims that it is. Uh, when uh, we don't actually see the whole picture. And so the limitation of our knowledge is we we could give lip service to things like there are deep and enduring goods in the world that do require some sin, evil, rebellion against God. Are we really certain then that we don't live in that world? Uh, because yeah. that's a pretty good rebuttal to this. The a segue, a second kind of rebuttal to this is that that same line of thinking is called the higher level goods argument, that there are goods that have to have pain, there are some goods that have to have evil and wrong, and that God is working these higher goods in the universe that he created through uh -huh. the bad things that happen. So a big proponent of this is Richard Swinburne, who's a British philosopher. And he, he, I'm going to read you a quote of his that I think 
is a nice uh, pushback on this on this argument. Having the natural possibility of causing suffering makes possible a greater good. Okay, so if you want the greater good, you have to take suffering as a given. God, in creating humans who, of logical necessity, cannot choose for themselves the kind of world into which they come, right? We, you know, we are dependent beings, plausibly exhibits his goodness in making for them the heroic choice that they come into a risky world where they may have to suffer for the good of others. It's a really interesting way of framing this. We don't get to choose the kind of world we live in. God could have made like a dainty good world, which where the the goodness index can only go up to three, but the badness index can only go up to negative two. He could have created that kind of world. And then we would be living in that world. And maybe things would be a little bit more pleasant, but they wouldn't be as good. Right. Instead, what he says is God made the the heroic choice of creating a world where the good index goes all the way up to 10. The greatest goods go all the way up to 10, the deepest, most enduring goods. Right. But that world actually has bad things that go down to negative seven. And so mm-hmm. we find ourselves in that kind of world. And it was God that put us there, but it was God who set the number line. You know, it's God that, right. that actually decided to create a world where that really bad things happen because really, really, really good things come about. And that that's kind of the higher level goods argument. Um, and I think that's a pretty good argument. Yeah, I do too. And I really think Swinburne makes a very good point here. I'm going to jump off to make a related point, And that is in the big scheme of things, talking about humanity in general, let's also take the individual. And I think he makes a great point here is that there are, It's not like suffering is evenly distributed Mm. or good temporal outcomes are evenly distributed. So it's possible to be a Job, if you will. And Swinburne talks about that I may have a greater amount of suffering and that results in huge amount of good in the world. And I'll go back to anchoring this to what I think is a a key idea is that if this life is all there is, I'm going to argue that's unfair. Mm -hmm. If, however, there's eternity, and this is what I think Christian point of view is, is that no, that is actually a very noble and heroic thing to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with that. To put it on the individual level, the third uh, objection or the third response is the free will defense. This and this is the most popular, both on a right. individual kind of church level. It's also the most popular on a philosophical level. This is really the right. robust pushback to the problem of evil is that one of these greater goods that God has created in the world is free will. And you'll hear people say this kind of off the cuff. Well, why do bad things happen? Well, it's free will. People have to be free to do bad things. That's not as naive, maybe, as it sounds. That is, right. there is a lot of depth there. But I, but I think we need to nuance a little bit what we mean by free will. So I think to start this argument out, you have to realize that free will doesn't just mean that people are free to do whatever they want. Actually, people, most people don't believe that. Even most right. non-theists don't believe that. In in fact, I think you're 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 running up against a very difficult um, possibility of not being a determinist if you're a total uh, materialist Darwinist. Right. But on the flip side, there is some ability that 
humans have to choose that brings about some moral responsibility. And that's where the Bible really begins to speak to this issue, is one of the things that's interesting is you never get a full-fledged defense against the problem of evil in the Bible. Sometimes this is called a theodicy, which is a defense of God. You never get a full-fledged theodicy in the Bible. Instead, what you get is the compatibility between God's good character and oversight in the world and human responsibility for their actions. And this is where you have a lot of disagreement. Kind of the uh, pop version of this is the kind of Calvinist versus Arminian. Do you have free will, no free will? Actually, neither one of them believe in total libertarian free will. And almost none of them believe in total determinism. I mean, you have to get out on the outskirts of either one of those positions to get those. Instead, you have this blend, and people disagree about where this is, of God overseeing and directing the affairs of the world, and humans exercising their will in such a way that they're responsible for their actions. They are morally culpable for what they do and do not do. So this free will defense basically sits in the middle of that. And Alvin Plantinga has made the best version of this in God, Freedom, and Evil. God is creating the best possible world that contains a level of human freedom that can produce the kinds of goods that God has designed. So of all the possible worlds, you can just cross off all the ones on the list that don't have humans that can make true decisions. And the best of those possible worlds is this one. That's kind of his argument. There's an element of free will that has to be there for it to be really, really, really good. And that one is going to entail some evil. It's going to entail sin and rebellion. But we happen to live in the best version of that world. I think this is a a good argument. And I think it's thoughtful. It's thoughtful in some subtle ways, too. For example, if this comes to the center because the fact that we are even talking about good and evil implies some level of moral choice. Otherwise, you would have kind of a Nietzschean world where there is no such thing as good and evil. They're illusions. So the fact that we believe that there is such a thing and the fact that we're talking about it plays into this world that Plantinga is talking about. Uh, Second thing is that, uh, and this is pretty obvious, but without human freedom, human choice in some element, you might say I've done away with evil, but you also have done away with beauty and love and other desirable things as well. So I do agree with you, Cole. I think whether you think this is a compelling argument or not, it is situated at the, the center of this discussion. Mm-hmm. Maybe the last uh, response that we want to mention, and, and I don't know that this is a total response to the argument, but it's certainly something worth mentioning because this is the way the Bible talks about evil in terms of God, is that God is working through suffering and evil in the world. So one of the reasons there is suffering and evil is because it is a tool of God's to use for the things that he wants to bring about in the world. So a version of this would be, when we talk about Romans 8.28, God is working all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. One of those big things is the reconciliation of his people through the death of Jesus. So the death of Jesus would be the suffering and pain, any immense suffering and pain that are necessary to bring about what God's plan is for the world. So if God's plan is redemption, 
There has to be the evil and suffering of Jesus' death. And, and it's not incidental that that happens. It's actually something that God is utilizing to bring about his end. So that there are these necessary pieces of suffering that God is then working through to create the end goals that he has for the world. So C.S. Lewis, uh, in The Problem of Pain, points this out. And he talks about it on how God works with human beings. Maybe you could put this in a mm -hmm. subcategory under the free will defense, but how God works with human beings uh, through suffering and evil. He says the human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. This presents a picture of you have these human beings who are created with an inherent level of free will and consciousness. And I think part of the defense against the problem of evil is in order to create a conscious being, embedded in that concept is if I can distinguish myself from God, if I'm not God and I'm conscious of that, then I can choose myself over God. That's just embedded right. in being a conscious being. And right. that is the result of, and that, and that is sin. So if you're going to create a human being like that, then the tool you need to bring a human being like that to serving and worshiping God is suffering. And this is all over the Bible, that suffering actually achieves something in us that can't be achieved any other way. So Lewis is pointing out, you know, God, he can whisper to us in the good things. He can show himself in the good things. He can speak by the conscience. He can speak by his word. But sometimes the loudest way that God speaks to us, the greatest way he gets our attention is through our suffering and hardship. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's, it's his tool that is part and parcel with conscience, consciousness and independence and freedom in order to achieve his aims in the world. So like I said, I don't know that this is directly a response to the problem of evil, but it certainly is a biblical take on what God is doing in the world that we find ourselves in that goes along with the way that he's created the world. I actually think this and the next point we're going to discuss are more important. They, they shift just a little. The first three defenses attack the idea on a philosophical level, basically, of why is God you know, what, is, what does it say about the character of God that he allows evil? But in our Monday through Friday, day in, day out world, the fact still remains, regardless of your philosophical position, that evil is here. And so everybody, Christian or not, is trying to make sense of evil and how do I deal with it? So in some sense, C.S. Lewis and in a minute, Tim Keller are going to say, well, actually, I want to start a little further downstream, and that is, it's here. What do you want to do with it? This mm -hmm. is very pragmatic, because it says, I'm going to give you a way of looking at the evil in the world. So, for example, Buddhism, and I'm going to uh, really make this short, but fundamentally, Buddhism is occupied with the same thing. How do you deal with suffering in the world? And the answer is different. The answer is, look at the world as though it's illusory, get rid of the dual nature, in other words, withdraw, etc. That is an answer to that. You can say it's not a good answer, and that's what I would say. This is a different answer. It says that, you know what, actually, suffering in and of itself 
can be used for a good purpose. Let me go back to the child uh, analogy again, because I find these so good. Most of us would say that, you know, it would be a wonderful life if you grew up and you never had any discomfort, you never got a stomach bug, you never got your will thwarted, you got what you wanted, things went your way, you did well in school, you were a good athlete, everything went your way. We, on one hand, we would say, wow, that's good. That's what we want. That's what this whole problem of evil argument is about, is why do we even need it? And yet every parent will tell you, and every one of us would tell you that, no, you're actually, that is, the, that is how you raise sociopaths. In other words, if you want a well-adjusted, mature, resilient adult, you're going to have to have some suffering. So we know that to be true. Well, let's generalize it. Perhaps that's exactly what God is saying. The only way to get to a faithful, resilient, redeemed individual is to go through a certain amount of suffering. And that, I think, is the message of the Bible. Right. Yeah, I've heard this analogy used before. I've used it myself in a sermon. I don't know who originally came up with it, but but um, there was a group at the University of Arizona that built a biodome. And what they did in the biodome is they tried to recreate the world under this dome that shielded it from all kinds of pernicious effects. And what uh -huh. they realized was after doing this for a while, they they had trees that were growing in there, but they kept falling over when they got to a certain height. And so they realized that you, we, we've got all these adolescent trees that won't grow to maturity. And they realized that it was because there was no wind in the biodome. And uh -huh. that one of the things that forces trees to send their roots deep and wide and, and establish a base is the stimulus of wind and pushback mm -hmm. and uh, suffering, we might say, in uh, tree, Adversity. Yes. tree world. And so, so it presents you with a choice. You can have adolescent trees and not have any wind. Or you can have full-grown oak trees, but you got to have wind and storms yeah. and everything that comes with that. Yeah. And that's that's a great picture of the way that God has designed the world. You like you mm -hmm. like you described. You can have adolescence. You can have uh, kind of muted goods without adversity, or you can have real mature, solid joys with adversity. And those are really the two right. options. I think going back to the ignorance argument, uh, the pushback is there is the belief that we could have a 10 out of 10 on goodness with zero on badness. That right. just actually doesn't seem to be possible. That doesn't seem to be uh, something that human beings created as we are can have. What will be interesting is we go through this season of life where we have you know 10, 10 out of 10, or maybe we would say more properly in this world, we have eight out of 10 on goodness and we have uh -huh. negative seven on badness, which prepares us for a world then where we live at a 10 out of 10 on goodness and a zero right. on badness. But it doesn't seem like that world can come first. And that's, that's just the right. way the, the, I'm not saying that even as an argument, I'm saying it as a description. That's the way the Bible describes the universe is there has to be this period in order to build up to that period, which is to come. And that just seems to be the way that God has created the world. And you may not buy that if you're not a Christian, but for us Christians, that's what the Bible describes, is a world now with pain and suffering that develops the goods that God promises, and then the experience of those goods without evil 
in the world to come in the new heavens and the new earth. So to, to put a fine point on this, I think this is a pretty philosophical episode, but it has to do with real life. I mean, this is this is something that right. everybody's going to face. And I love the way Tim Keller talks about this and the reason for God. He's really hitting on several of these points combined. And, and like you said, mm -hmm. let's just take it downstream a little bit. What do you do when you suffer? Because it, it, it doesn't right. do you very much good. I mean, this is kind of the approach Job's friends take. It doesn't do you very much good to speculate about you know, the eternal pre-existence uh, of God, you know, before the existence of the world, what was God doing and how do we account for evil and all that when you're suffering? It's a lot right. better to just figure out what God has given you in your suffering. And so in The Reason for God, Tim Keller writes, if we ask again the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? And we look at the cross of Jesus, we still do not know what the answer is. However, we know what the answer isn't. It can't be that God doesn't love us. It can't be that he is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. This is really the storyline of scripture is you may, you may not be able to, yes. we, we may not know all that we need to know to solve the problem of evil on the God side of things. But we certainly know what the answer cannot be. And it cannot be that right. God is not good, not powerful. It cannot be that God is detached and doesn't care. We know that he came and took suffering upon himself on the cross to bring about the greatest good in this world, which is the reunion of his people with him and life in eternity with him forever. And so if we take that as our starting point, it takes us a long way down the road on the problem of evil. I think so, too. And this is really a powerful point for people who doubt. And we all do. But here's here's a, a really instructive lesson. You've talked before about the idea of doubting your doubts. But usually when people have this issue, they've, they've seen or experienced evil in the world, suffering, adversity, and that leads them to doubt God's goodness or that does God really love me? If so, why did this happen? So it is a doubt. And I understand that it's very natural and it can be a very good thing. But if you just sit there and you focus on that, I think you're going to go nowhere. What Keller does is he says, well, this doubt is still here. And perhaps I can't answer it. But you know what? A question we don't often think to ask is, well, wait a minute. But I know it can't be this. Mm. In other words, you broaden it. You begin to doubt your doubt and say, well, is that all there is to say? Well, you know, actually, there's not. Because if God gave his only son and God entered into this suffering, I suppose I can't assume that he doesn't love us. And I appreciate Keller's point because it says, look, don't just sit in your doubt, widen the net a little bit, because you actually, you may not know the answer of suffering, but you do know some things. And one thing you know is God is not indifferent to our suffering. Mm -hmm. I think that's really useful for people when they are doubting. Mm -hmm. It makes sense of the way that the Bible most commonly deals with suffering, which is not to promise that things are going to get better, that suffering is going to go away, but that God will be present in suffering. And so there's something about this that that undermines these objections uh, revolving around the problem of evil is that God promises to be with his people when they suffer. And if right. you can't figure out the origin, you can certainly figure out the experience, which is God will be with you, maybe particularly in your sufferings. You know, it's, it's a little bit analogous to this great uh, story in the gospel of John, where, you know, the man who Jesus uh, cured his blindness and 
he gets into this big discussion. The Pharisees want to know, well, was he really from God? And is he really a good guy? And you remember the beautiful line. He says, all I know is I was blind and now I see. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain element of that in this. And maybe a good way to close this is that in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our doubts, and in the midst of all this philosophy, we can say like him, I don't know why this is happening, but I know my God is with me. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.